I mentioned this before, two companies ago led product at HubSpot. This was super early days, like 2008, 2009. The way they would demo would be showing HubSpot's own portal of HubSpot. You know, the new rep was showing off the CMS and accidentally deleted HubSpot's homepage, like the actual one. We can navigate to any, you know, UI that loads in a browser and in a few seconds capture it and have it look and feel and behave as though it is the actual product. But it's not. It's almost like, you know, the the old Western movie sets where like they just had the front of the saloon and the back was just, it didn't exist. We kind of do that for software. Hi, I'm Evan Powell. I'm Sam Clemens. And we are two of the co-founders of Reprise. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Evan Powell and Sam Clemens, along with their founding team, built the platform for you to create the perfect demo. All this and more on Code Story. Evan Powell had a career mostly in sales, which started in college within his acapella group. His group recorded tracks for the well-known show Glee, and Evan had to manage and negotiate contracts with Fox. Outside of professional ventures, he still continues his singing and plays Dungeons & Dragons with his friends. Sam Clemens came up on the opposite side of the house, on the build side. He was a product manager at HubSpot and Upwork, and co-founder of Insight Squared. He also teaches at business school and gets his hands dirty on the weekends, helping his wife with her commercial farm by driving the tractor and wielding a chainsaw. Evan, Sam, and their other co-founder experience a recurring problem with sales demos at their prior companies, with sales reps deleting material from production environments or internal teams spending lots of time maintaining separate demo versions. They thought there had to be a better way. This is the creation story of Reprise. Reprise, we are a a demo creation platform. So we allow sales teams and marketing teams to really easily capture the front end of their software and create the perfect demo experience for whatever they need to use it for, whether it is an amazing, you know, tailored live demo to use on the phone, a demo experience that they can send out to their buyer after a call so that they can review it internally, or even put up a demo on their website so that, you know, you can have highly qualified leads coming in that have already taken a demo. Essentially, the goal of Reprise is to put control of the product and how it's shown in a sales engagement into the hands of the go-to-market team that needs to interact with it every day. We started the company because we had seen this exact problem in the previous companies we worked at. It's a problem that is surprisingly common amongst companies that make software. I mentioned this before, two companies ago led product at HubSpot. This was super early days, like 2008, 2009. Team of 45, you know, five, 10 sales reps and, and one of the new sales reps, the, the way they would demo would be showing HubSpot's own portal of HubSpot. So, you know, this is HubSpot's website where you can build pages. These are HubSpot's keywords, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the new rep was showing off the CMS and accidentally deleted HubSpot's homepage, like the actual one. Believe it or not, that, that way of demoing using your company's own portal, like all the reps in the same portal is, is more common than you might think. Our last company, we did it differently in in another common pattern. 
In our last company at Insight Squared, we had the engineering team make a, a demo environment by basically duplicating the production environment. Just a lot of effort. You have to anonymize the database. You have to maintain a separate cluster. You have to fork the code, et cetera, et cetera. It just it's super painful to do. And so after those two experiences, you know, you kind of walk away saying that there must be a better way to give sales and marketing teams control over the thing that they're uh, using and, and demoing and selling in their in their functions that they do every single day. Let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? The story of how we, we got started. So Sam mentioned, right, that uh, we met in a business school class. I actually, you know, I'd known Sam. I was a salesperson at Insight Squared and managed sales teams there. And when I went back to business school, I saw Sam was teaching a class. And, and so I decided to take his class. I thought it would be fun. Thought I might be able to get an easy A. It was, it was not that. Um, but it was a great class and we got to talking about, you know, what I was looking to do and those kinds of things. He said, oh, we, you should go start a company. I was like, Sam, that's super flattering, but like, I don't have an idea. I don't have an ability to code or anything like that. He reconnected me with Brian Stevenson, our third co-founder. And Brian said, hey, I have this concept. Uh, do you want to talk? And that was, that was the idea for Reprise. And at the time, he had kind of cracked the capturing portion of what we do, right? So what we can do is we can navigate to any you know UI that loads in a browser and in a few seconds capture it and have it look and feel and behave as though it is the actual product. But it's not. It's almost like, you know, the, the old Western movie sets where like they just had the front of the saloon and the back was just, it didn't exist. We, we kind of do that for software. And so when you talk about like, what was the first thing that we were showing, it was that we could navigate to someone's UI and a few seconds later have a perfect capture. And just that at the time was enough to kind of knock people's socks off because when you think about it, like, okay, having an, an isolated version of my product somewhere, that was brand new. So that was kind of the starting point when we went out to our very first customers and we were kind of taking sales calls from like study rooms at, at MIT and that kind of thing. And, and that was what we were showing. And over time, we began to you know, evolve and put in an editing interface so that people could change it and customize it and do all these different things. And then, you know, adding analytics and layering on that on top. But really, the, the core, the first thing that we started with was just that we could we could do that capture. It, it was pretty raw. Like, for example, there was nothing that like while we could capture and we could render an app, there was nothing that a customer could log into. Like there's no interface for, for an external user. Which I think maybe is, I think a lot of founders out there, particularly if they're doing B2B, you mentioned MVP, I think they tend to misinterpret the M, the V, and the P of what MVP means. I think they tend to think M is something beautifully designed, um, and it's not. It's more like keep stripping off features until like it really actually doesn't make sense anymore. Like for us, our, our V, the viable part, was when we actually had three customers who were writing us checks for that super raw product. And as a founder, the, the, the reason that's nice is because it helps you avoid a false positive on people saying they like your product, uh, but maybe not really, and then you, know, you can't get the business off the ground. If, if you draw the line at, like, will someone write us a check for this awful raw thing? If they do, then you know you really have something. Okay, so sticking on the MVP for a minute, you know, as you build any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? When you're stripping off features like you're talking about down to the core where it doesn't make sense or, or just putting something out there that's very simple, you have to make those decisions and trade-offs. And, and it could be around tech debt, feature cut. What is the, you know, the, the focal point of the product? 
Tell me about some of those in a little more detail that you had to make as a team and how you coped with those decisions. The, the base idea here is keep removing features until like it, 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 it doesn't work anymore. And so, for example, like first to go should be anything that makes it like easy to use or pretty or a delightful interface, any of that kind of thing. Um, I think sometimes founders have like self-doubt that like, well, what if no one loves my product because, you know, it's it's not beautiful. And it's like, well, if they won't write you a check for whatever the basic thing is, if it needs to be beautiful for them to write you a check, then it, it wasn't a big enough pain point to begin with. For example, in, in what we were doing, um, there was no interface that you could log into. There was nothing on the capture side that a user could use. We skipped, like today we have a platform where it can capture you can log in, there's a whole editing platform, and then we render. Think of it as like three things. The original product that our three customers wrote us checked for was just the third thing. The rest of it was, you know, Wizard of Oz style, like, you know, man behind the curtain, Brian doing it manually. And even the capturing at the time, right? Because, you know, we capture via a Chrome extension and now we're on the web store, we push updates to the extension all the time, that kind of thing. We were having to like send people a zip file and saying like, hey, here's how you sideload this extension into your browser. And, you know, just ignore that warning about sideloading being scary because that's, you know, that's what it's going to take to get this thing up and running and capturing. At our previous company, the eventual product was a sales analytics platform that, you know, ingested data from Salesforce, would process the data and then output it into charts that showed you like sales cycle and sales funnel analysis and forecasting and all these things. The original MVP was an Excel spreadsheet, and the V of the MVP was because we got customers to actually write us a check. We had two customers that wrote us checks for the Excel spreadsheet, not for anything that they could log into. So you've got the MVP, it's working, people are writing the checks, right? How did you take that and progress the product and mature it? I think to wrap that in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is how you went about building your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Reprise. It's actually easier if you've taken this approach of making it super minimal. And also in particular, if you've, if you haven't done it in like production code to begin with, like that Excel spreadsheet, once you have people writing checks and you need to convert it into software, you just need to convert what you're doing, the, the Excel spreadsheet you made into working software. So you need to build the API connection that pulls data from Salesforce instead of you uploading it via CSV. You need to build something that they can actually log into. You need to build something that renders the charts. Really, the exercise at that point is super simple. It's convert your MVP into actual software because your MVP up until then has not been software. We made sure we were getting feedback from not just customers or people that were writing checks, but also people that may have wanted to write checks but didn't think we were ready or those kinds of things. Like we were using call recording software for our sales calls from from really early days. And you know, most sales call recording software is is providing a transcription. And I remember we would set up little tags so that like if I was on a sales call and someone suggested something that I thought might be interesting or that I'd heard before, I could say, oh yeah, you know, my co-founder Sam would be really interested in in hearing more about that. And that would actually create a flag that would send Sam an email to like the clip where I had said that so that he could go back and look at like what the, the prospect or customer had said that I thought was was valuable for him to take a look at. Let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? 
And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Sam, I always love your your Ocean's Eleven analogy for how startups get started. And I think that was definitely true here. I, I don't know if it's dated. If you've seen the mo- movie Ocean's Eleven, um, it's, a, it's a good heist movie. But at the beginning of the movie, I think it's Brad Pitt and getting the other actor. Anyway, essentially, they're, they're, they're planning the heist. And they get together and they say, all right, we need a crew. We need like a safe cracker. What about Johnny? Is Johnny available? No, Johnny's in jail. All right, what about Frankie? All right, let's grab Frankie. You know, we need a driver. We need a, a better that you run down the list. I think starting a company from, from scratch, if you are the best hirer in the world, you've got a 70% success rate, call it, on hiring people that long-term work out. And 70% when you're a large company may be fine because there's a, there's a resilience in a mature company that has a, an HR function and performance management and all that stuff. But in a startup, a 70% success rate um, would be fatal. So the, the, the best and frankly, the only strategy I've ever been able to see or make work is sort of that Ocean's Eleven strategy is have a, a, a keeper list of, you know, the five best salespeople you've ever worked with, five best engineers, three best marketers, but even like the, the three best customer success people. Who are the two best uh, finance and operations people you've ever worked with? You, you actually keep like for real, like a list, put it in a, in a spreadsheet if you want. And when you go to start your company, you can kind of run down the list and not all of them will be available based on where they are in their career and their life. But if you have a, a solid enough list with some depth to it, um, you'll be able to run down the list and be like, oh, you know, is, is Will available? Yeah, Will might be available. You know, he's been on a project for a few years. You might want to look at something new. And you kind of run down the list and that's how you pull together your crew. That kind of helped us form that, that initial core that, that really got us going. And I think from there, you know, we were able to lean into a few things that were going on at the time. I mean, one of the things we haven't mentioned we all got together to do this the first week of March, 2020. So the second week of March, 2020, the entire world shut down. And so we, we realized that, that we were probably gonna be a remote company for the foreseeable future. And so, you know, once we had that core, you know, eventually you get to a point and it's, it's, it's sort of a, a scary point to an extent of saying like, okay, now I'm at the point where I, I have to go hire people who are, who are new, who I may not have had in my network before. And, and what we did for that was, was made sure early on that, that we had set, you know, a, a pretty strong set of, of standards and, you know, unified interview process and all that kind of thing. But then we leaned into being remote and we said, you know, we, you know, part of this is it enables us to have a higher bar because we can open a role and be looking for the best person in the country. And, and I think that also helped us capture a lot of very, very strong talent early on. Okay, let's flip to scalability then. And this will be, this will be interesting. So was this built to scale efficiently from day one in that first MVP version? Or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction in any capacity? I think early stage architecting for scalability uh, can actually be uh, counterintuitively uh, quite dangerous and what you don't want. So for example, uh, customer success is a, is, is, a, is a prime example. I think early on, your product is raw, your knowledge of the, of the problem and the situation and the customer perspective is still evolving. You need to do the, the unscalable thing where customer success is spending what in later stage might seem like way too much effort and time on every single customer. And that's okay early on. In fact, that's actually what you want. The KPI in the early stage that matters most is not, you know, how many hours spent per call or how many accounts can be managed by one person. The, the KPI that matters in the early stage 
is how many weddings you've been invited to by your accounts. And the record that I've seen is three in one year. So that's the orientation I think you want to have in the early stages is deliberately not scalable because you're trying to you're trying to nail it and scale it. And in order to nail it, you need to go overboard on on basically everything. Once you've done that enough times, you will then see the pattern and then you can scale the pattern. But if you try and scale it before you get the pattern, you're going to scale it wrong. I, I also think though, Sam, there were some things where you and, and Brian in particular, you know, saw early on that we were, you know, that this that this was a solution that was going to be especially relevant to the enterprise, where like the, the larger you grow, the the more painful this becomes. But obviously you can't, you know, you can't start with an MVP and and go marching into a Fortune 50 company. And so there was definitely some product vision that Brian and Sam built in early on to make sure that we were ready for that. You know, things like, you know, we, we prepared for enter, enterprise grade security from the beginning. We made sure that we had, you know, access controls in there. We made sure that our demos are hosted on a, on a CDN so that they won't fail, you know, even if you hit them with a crazy amount of traffic. So there were, there were definitely product decisions that we made early on for scaling in terms of the size of customer that we could handle, you know, as we started to cross the chasm and get those, those larger customers in the door. Yeah. The way, the way I would break it down is essentially there's, there's organizational scalability, and then there's product scalability. If you're going after enterprise customers, for example, which we are, then there's a set of things, think of them almost as features that you need to build in order to handle that kind of scale or that kind of reliability. In fact, many of them, they make sense to build if you're servicing an enterprise customer, but they're not what you would build if you were selling to SMB customers. And so when selling to enterprise, again, think of them as features, you add those kind of scalability features and, and those are roadmap decisions. Th those types of decisions are very different than organizational scaling uh, decisions. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Sam and Brian have founded companies before. This, this was this is my my first go at it, and you know I think you walk into it and you think like, oh, I'm going to be proud of the deals or the revenue or the funding we've raised or whatever it is. But I think the thing that I have learned the most and like the thing that gets me up in the morning is is working with the team that we have and getting to interact with these the, these incredible people we've brought into Reprise. It's really invigorating. To, to sort of get up in the morning and see people coming with amazing ideas that you you hadn't thought of yourself and and see it sort of take a life of its own and see these folks kind of pour their their time and effort into it and create outcomes that you you hadn't even imagined when you first started that's really what driven me and I think you know maybe you think there's going to be some of it but I hadn't realized when we started that like that's that's really the thing for me it's both exciting and motivating and also, you know, you, you, you feel like you have a responsibility to make sure that you are, you're doing everything you can for this to be a great experience for those people. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think any early stage, maybe it's different late stage, um, but any early stage founder who's not, who's not there because of the team is, is, is missing the point. Let's flip the script a little bit then. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. A mistake I've made would be uh, trying, trying, to, trying to make customer success more efficient too soon. And the, it's super tempting, right? Because you've got a bunch of customers, things are really clicking, particularly in the early stages if you're selling SaaS, 
you've got a, a recurring revenue model. And so in that first year when you're selling, it's super easy to look at the, the, the sales stats. You don't have data yet on renewals. And so it's super easy to basically then go and architect a efficient customer success motion. And it's super dangerous and you should not do it. Customer success, in fact, should be the last function that you attempt to make efficient. And it shouldn't be in the first year, it should be in like the third year. Sam does such a good job of, of thinking of this on a macro level, right? Because I'm looking at it and being like, gosh, you know, I decided it was a good idea to lease computers and that was a nightmare and a pain to get out of. Or like, you know, I bought this thing and that piece of software didn't work out. You know, I'm just, it's just sort of like, I'm sitting here kind of like reliving all the like little things that, that didn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but they were, they were stressful at the time, I can tell you. Uh, so I'll give you another one if you want. I've been at six different startups. One of them, we, we just really never got that far. And I think the mistake is perhaps a common one that other founders uh, encounter, which is we just never found enough pain. And the lesson here for founders is like, this is why in the MVP, like why I'm so urgent on like the, for the, at least in B2B, the V is where their customer is like paying you for that super raw, super early product. There's a, a large risk, particularly in the early stage when you've got super passionate founders that you can get a false positive on whether or not there's really something there. And so I think as an, as an early stage founder, you have to be super aware and critical that you make sure you're going after something that's big enough to be worth solving. Like you don't want to go after a target that has a super small bullseye or that requires like you're trying to thread the needle and just requires like absolutely perfect execution to make a business out of. It's too hard. Like no one has perfect execution. What you want is a pain point big enough that you could drive a truck through it. That's what you're looking for. Because then when you make the invariable missteps on whatever part of the organizational building that happens, it's not a problem. You can keep on rolling because there's enough opportunity there for you to basically have the resilience to, to keep on trucking. This will be fun. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? I talk about this with employees a lot, especially when folks just start. You know, they say like, you know, what, where do you want our priest to be in five years? And my personal feeling is if we get overly committed to a particular direction or a particular thing that we want to happen, we can wind up making bad decisions because we're making them towards this, this thing that we thought was true at the time versus reacting to the data that we have right now. So that's not to say that we walk around like completely with, without vision. Um, cause we do, we have, you know, product direction and ways that we want, you know, we talk about at the core of what we're doing, we're changing the way that people sell software. And, and we have this vision for how people should be selling products in the way that buyers actually want to buy them. And, and that's what we want to build. But at the same time, I, you know, the, the main commitment that, that I make to folks when they come and work here is that like, we will be heading towards whatever the best possible future for reprise is based on the data that we have at the time. You know, I, I think that's something that, that I, I really put a lot of time into thinking about. Is, is not overly committing to a particular outcome. And you see it, right? You see, you see founders who, who get focused on like, I must be this, or, or the company must be this. And even when it seems like, you know what, the facts on the ground are that thing's not going to happen. There may be a good other, other outcome for you over here. They really focus on that and, and, and wind up making decisions that aren't, aren't the best for the company. Or my point of view is like, we're strategically non-committal. On, on what happens in, in four to five years, because we, we wanna make sure that we're always optimizing for what is best for the company, our stakeholders, our employees. I think Evan's right. We, we're not fixated on 
specific set of features or a specific, like, this is how the product needs to work. Instead, what we're driven by is a, a, a long-term vision and mission, like a, a North Star. And the funny thing about stars is that they're far away on purpose. They're, they're not right in front of you. And that's part of what makes them powerful as you're, as you're heading in that direction. So in this case, it's been very clear to us now for you know, years, a decade, that the way people buy software is changing, has changed. That's a, that's a long-term thing, right? That's a, a star that is, so that, that's a, a big movement. And similarly, companies that make software, there's been pain around how to adjust to that. You hear terms like uh, product-led growth. It, a lot of it boils down to how do companies that make software, how do they show product to companies earlier in the process, for example? And so that may manifest in many ways. You know, a demo platform, maybe they're using it live on a call, maybe they're putting it in their website. There's lots of tactical decisions that fall out of that, but the, the big picture stuff that doesn't change is fundamentally the way people buy software has changed and we want to enable that, whatever that means. Not only is the way that people buy software changed, the way that people sell it hasn't really caught up. The software sales process is sort of the same as it was in like 2010 when SaaS was still relatively new and Salesforce was running around with their big, you know, no software logo and things like that. And, and the results are, are not great. And I don't have the stat right to hit, but it's like, I think it's 77% or over 70% of, of buyers said that their last B2B software purchase was too difficult. And like, that, that is like a stunning indictment on the industry. And, and so like that's that is something that to Sam's point, regardless of, of the method by which we fix it specifically, that's the thing that we're going after. So we talked about a mistake earlier, but this is a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different or where would you consider taking a different approach? They all kind of band together under the, the general theme of like remaining agile in adjusting to changes in the market. Uh, changes to buyers' needs, changes to you know the technology landscape. Think of it this way: the the, the feedback loop, the, the heartbeat of your company. When you're doing an early stage startup, you want the heartbeat to be you know not quarterly. And I'm not talking about vision stuff. I'm talking about more more tactical. Um, it, it can't be quarter quarterly. In fact, you, you probably don't want to even have the notion of like a quarter in an early stage startup. Like that should be an alien concept. You, know, you should likely have monthly results, and but the heartbeat of the company should probably be like weekly. You know, iterating weekly on what you're doing in sales and marketing and product and edge. That may seem uh, crazy, I think, to a later stage company, but in an early stage company, it's crucial. You know, it's such a good point because it's the sort of thing that you think you can do just by virtue of being small and being in a fast changing industry. That of course you'll do that, but actually. There's, there's a framework that you need to have in place to make that possible. You, you need to be able to free people from a number of sort of basic, res, not responsibilities, but like things that can distract them so that they can be looking out for those changes and being proactive. Um, and I think there are definitely things that, that, you know, I would have leaned into earlier in terms of like, you know, structure and making sure that we have communication channels set up and stuff that, that would basically make it easier for that to happen that we've done now. Um, and I think are, are, are really helping us now. But it wasn't until we realized that, you know, in certain areas we weren't moving as fast as we wanted that we then went back and looked at ways to, to speed it up. Um, 
I, I would have wanted to be more proactive on building out systems so that those feedback loops got faster. And, and it almost sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? Because like, be faster. And I'm sitting here saying, well, and, and maybe some more process would have helped. But I actually think that, that there are areas where I'd go back and look at, you know, how can I add, add just a little bit of process and framework so that we can be faster at making those iterations. Well, well last question, guys. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I mean, <laughs> there's, there's the self-serving one, which is make sure you have a really good demo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm also not. Like I've, I've sat in the room at VCs where like the, you know, the founders couldn't show a, a product that was interesting. But I think the other thing that, that I, would, I would talk about is that the product is part of it, but you also need to think about what's the company that you want to build with that, right? Like, like the type of company that you are starts with the co-founders you get together and then immediately progresses with each hire you build on. And so like, you need to have some sense of like, what do you want it to be like to be a part of this story and a part of this company? And, and having that vision, I think, is probably you know, as exciting to hear about as the thing that you're doing. And I think it can be really tempting to say like, well, my idea is amazing and that's it and it's gonna carry me through. But it's like, no, 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 what's what's the team gonna be like? What's the organization gonna be like that's gonna make this successful? Because there are plenty of startups with great ideas that did not succeed. The thing I would maybe say that that founder would be is to, to not lose focus on what I think is the, the most important thing over time, is to not lose, lose focus on team. To just be dogmatic and passionate and almost like crazily focused on always, always, always the quality of your team. I think as you're scaling, there's a temptation to say, well, you know, everything is going so well and there's, you know, so much pain here and the product is so good that, you know, it's okay if we don't have uh, A players in every slot. That is the path of mediocrity and that is the path that will ultimately, like, you know, not immediately, but 12 months down the road will bite you. You need to be constantly, maniacally focused on team. In my opinion, it really boils down to really just two pieces. What, what is the opportunity? Is, is there something really worth solving here? And do you have the team to do it? Fantastic advice. Well, gentlemen, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Reprise. Thank you so much for having us, Noah. It was great to be here. Thank you, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big